G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Now, Tim, you said last week that today we were going to be looking at the influence of the book of First Enoch on the authors of the New Testament, but we actually talked about that quite a lot last week. So how much more could we really have to say in this episode after we covered so much ground last time? Yeah, that's a fair question, Chris. And I think for a lot of our listeners, there might be some awareness that there's a little bit of Enoch sprinkled here and there throughout the pages of their New Testament. But I reckon it'd be a fair bet that most people have severely underestimated just how influential the book of First Enoch really was in the first century, and in particular on authors of the New Testament. This is actually a really huge topic, and I could produce another 10 episodes of the show just expanding on this, but that's not going to happen. So what we're going to do instead is a kind of a lightning-fast whip-around survey of the New Testament, and we're going to stop and look at specific scriptures a fair bit. But I'm also going to talk about themes and general ideas that have come from the pages of First Enoch. Before we get into it, though, I really want to be clear about this. I'm not suggesting that the Old Testament doesn't have a part to play here. You absolutely cannot argue that First Enoch stands independent of the Old Testament literature that influenced it in the first place. Without the Hebrew Bible, you just don't have the material for First Enoch to draw from and expand on and develop. So what we're going to do as we go through here, because I don't want to spend a whole heap of time just giving you quotes from First Enoch that you could have pulled from Leviticus or the Psalms or Genesis or whatever, we're going to focus mainly on stuff that wasn't really clear in the Old Testament, but has been made clear through First Enoch and then developed by New Testament writers. I talked about this a great deal in my book, Answers to Giant Questions, so there's going to be a lot more to read about there if you're interested in looking at this further. But I also want to talk about stuff here on this episode that I may not have touched on in the book, and there's going to be some overlap as well. All right, well, let's get into it. Where do we start? We might as well begin with the major story element of First Enoch, which is the sin of the Watchers and what follows after that. And we know that this is a considerable expansion on Genesis 6, which draws in elements of the previous two chapters in particular. According to First Enoch, the Watchers descend in the days of Jared upon Mount Hermon, and from there they proceed to take wives from among human women and to produce offspring with them who become the giants. The Watchers also teach forbidden arts and sciences to the humans who then use these in such a way that they become thoroughly corrupt and depraved. God pronounces judgment upon the Watchers, announcing their imprisonment and the destruction of their children, the Nephilim, and the Watchers ask Enoch to take a petition to God appealing for mercy on their behalf. Enoch does that, God says no, then the flood comes and everyone dies except for Noah and his family. The result of the forbidden union between the sons of God and the daughters of men is that the deceased Nephilim live on in disembodied form. And these spiritual remnants of the giants are referred to as unclean spirits because of their unholy mixture. This is the way that the origin of demons is explained in First Enoch. You can get there without First Enoch if you just studied the Old Testament, but it is a heck of a lot of work to pull various threads together in order to be able to tell that story. I mentioned that in my book. So if you want to see how the author of First Enoch arrives at that conclusion, I would recommend my book on that. Another significant element of the book of First Enoch is the theme of the future judgment and the coming punishment on those rebellious spirits and the people who follow them. Again, there's significant tie into the Old Testament, but we're going to see how New Testament writers specifically made use of First Enoch in reference to the fate of the wicked. And of course, the other major contribution that First Enoch makes to the New Testament is what we spoke about last week with regard to the identification of the Son of Man as Messiah. And we saw last week how Enoch himself was portrayed as a Messianic figure and that he foreshadowed 
the future Messiah, who is ultimately Jesus Christ. That's right. As I said before, there's no way that we're going to have enough time to get into all of the areas that First Enoch has been influential on the New Testament, but we're going to give it a red-hot go, so let's get into it, and we will begin with the book of Matthew. Matthew opens with the genealogy that connects us from Abraham to Jesus, and along the way he throws in some interesting characters that you wouldn't normally expect to find in a genealogy. You may have heard Dr. Heiser talk about this, and he wrote about it in his book, Reversing Hermon. You'll also find this presented in my own work, and both of us were drawing from the work of another scholar by the name of Amy Richter, who wrote a paper called The Enochic Watchers Template and the Gospel of Matthew, which was published by Marquette University uh, back in 2010. In that paper, Amy goes to some lengths to show that the inclusion of women in the genealogy presented by Matthew is designed to call to mind the stories associated with those women and specific connections that they have thematically to the story of the Watchers from First Enoch. There are five women in the genealogy of Jesus presented by Matthew. The first one is Tamar. The second woman in the genealogy is Rahab. Then we have Ruth. After that, we have the wife of Uriah, whose name is Bathsheba or Bathsheba. And of course, the list finishes with Mary, the mother of Jesus. All five of these women were either involved with or suspected of some kind of illicit sexual union, which is suggestive of the story of the Watchers and used by Matthew to indicate the reversal of what the fallen sons of God had done. This is taken further when we see that Tamar had made use of the art of beautification and seduction, which was part of that forbidden teaching that First Enoch suggests came through the Watchers. Is that what Amy Richter means when she talks about a template? Yeah, there's a bit of a pattern that comes out here. Rahab showed similar connections and was also involved in the art of warfare. Ruth married a man who was referred to as a gibor, which is another name for giant, although he wasn't actually a giant in the story. Bathsheba, also known as Bathsheba, harkens back to the story of Tamar as the daughter of Shua, who was a Canaanite man. You really need to read my book on that whole story to get the full picture. We just don't have time for it here. And then, of course, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who produces ultimately the unique son of God. So we have five women, five really unusual stories, five connections back to the sin of the Watchers, as told by First Enoch. There are a lot more connections into that story in the genealogy presented by Matthew, but again, time does not permit because we've got so much more to cover. And since we're all about genealogies this season, let's talk about the one presented by Luke. It's all right, I'm not going to read it. You can read it if you want. When you do, count how many generations you get between Enoch and Jesus. All right, I'm going to save you the trouble. It's 70. 70 generations. Why does that matter? Because it was the author of First Enoch who gave us this. This is First Enoch chapter 10, verse 12. When all their sons shall have slain one another and they shall have seen the destruction of their beloved ones, bind them under the hills of the earth for 70 generations, till the day of their judgment and of their end, till the last judgment has been passed for all eternity. That sounds ominous. It sure does. Just like almost every other messianic prophecy about the day of the Lord, the author of First Enoch conflates the coming of the Messiah with the final judgment. And Matthew presents a genealogy that concludes with the realization that the Messiah, who will be the final judge of all, has come in the person of Jesus Christ. The very fact that Jesus comes born of a virgin as the incarnate son of God is an intentional reversal of the Watcher's narrative, and the genealogy may have been manipulated to achieve that correlation, but again, it's the affirmations of the text that matter here, not necessarily the methods of making those affirmations. While we're looking at some of the bigger themes from the book of Enoch, of course, we can't go without mentioning the unclean spirits and the interaction of Jesus with the demons. Mark even goes as far as to paint a picture of the unclean spirits rushing into the abyss. That's not the Old Testament, that's Enoch. We don't get exorcisms in the book of John, but John does share the son of man language that we find in the synoptic gospels as well. And we talked about that last week, but we also get this in John 5 about judgment and the son. John 5.22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That sounds almost like a direct quote from Enoch 69 verse 27. 
And he sat on the throne of his glory, and the sum of judgment was given to the Son of Man. So it sounds like John doesn't mind using First Enoch when it's appropriate. Yeah, and even though, as I mentioned, you don't get exorcisms in John, that kind of language is important because it's the authority of Jesus to be the judge that's at work in exorcisms. Jesus talks about First Enoch, and when he does, he refers to it as Scripture. Matthew 22, verses 29 to 30, But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. We were talking about this a few weeks ago when we got a question about the physical nature of the sons of God. Because that argument centers around the idea that these divine beings must be non-embodied spirits and they can't interact with women. But we found out that Jesus made a clear distinction when he said that angels do not do in heaven what humans do on the earth with regard to marriage. And his point was that in the resurrection, people would have no need of marriage or marital relations because they'll be living an eternal life like the angels. Yeah, maybe he's saying that, and it's true. We often get really confused about this because we have these ideas from Greek philosophy about a disembodied afterlife and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's not an idea you get from the Old Testament, but everything that Jesus said there does come from First Enoch. Why have you left the high, holy, and everlasting heaven and lain with women and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men and taken wives unto yourselves and acted like the children of earth and begotten giants as sons? While ye were spiritual, holy, having eternal life, ye defiled yourselves with women. And with the blood of flesh have ye begotten children and have lusted after the blood of men and have produced flesh and blood as they do who die and are destroyed." Therefore, I have given them wives that they might impregnate them and children be born by them as it is done on earth. Ye were formerly spiritual, living an eternal life without death to all the generations of the world. Therefore, I have not made for you any wives, for spiritual beings have their home in heaven. And now the giants who have been begotten from body and flesh will be called evil spirits on earth, and their dwelling places will be upon the earth. Evil spirits proceed from their bodies because they are created from above their beginning and first basis being from the holy watchers. They will be evil spirits upon the earth and will be called evil spirits. That's First Enoch chapter 15, verses 3 to 9. And I want to point out too that phrase where it says that they defiled themselves with women. John refers to that in the book of the Revelation. This is Revelation 14, verses 3 to 5. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. All right, so I just mentioned that one because that's not John being sexist or something. He's making a reference to First Enoch concerning the purity of the 144,000 in comparison to the watchers who they will replace in the divine council. While we're on the topic of Revelation, what about the lake of fire? That's something that Jesus talked about too. Where does that come from? That's First Enoch. This is First Enoch chapter 10, verses 4 to 6. And again the Lord spoke to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, and put him in the darkness. Make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudael, and put him there. And lay upon him rough and pointed rocks, and cover him with darkness, that he may remain there forever. And cover his face, that he may not see the light. And on the great day of judgment, he will be cast into the fire. And now First Enoch chapter 10, verses 12 to 15, when all their sons shall have slain one another, and they shall have seen the destruction of their beloved ones. Bind them under the hills of the earth for 70 generations till the day of their judgment and of their end, till the last judgment has been passed for all eternity. And in those days they will be led to the abyss of fire in torture, and in prison they will be locked for all eternity. 
and then he will burn and be destroyed. They will be burned together from now on to the end of all generations and destroy all souls of lust and the children of the watchers because they have oppressed mankind. This is First Enoch 17 verse 5. And I came to a river of fire whose fire flows like water and is emptied into a great sea, which is toward the west. First Enoch chapter 18 verses 11 to 16. And I saw a great abyss in the earth with columns of heavenly fire. And I saw among them columns of heavenly fire which fall and are without number, either towards the height or towards the depth. And over that abyss I saw a place which had no firmament of heaven above it, and no foundation of earth beneath it, and no water above it, and no birds upon it. It was a void place. And there I saw a terrible thing, seven stars like great burning mountains and like spirits that petitioned to me. The angel said, This is the place of the consummation of heaven and earth. It is a prison for the stars of heaven and for the host of heaven. And the stars that roll over the fire are they who have transgressed the command of God before their rising because they did not come forth in their time. And he was enraged at them and bound them till the time of the consummation of their sins in the year of the mystery. This is First Enoch chapter 54 verse 6. Michael and Gabriel, Raphael and Phanuel, they will overpower them on that great day, will throw them on that day into the oven of burning fire, that the Lord of the spirits may avenge himself on them on account of their injustice because they became subject to Satan and have led astray those who dwell on the earth. Now, that was just a handful of references. There are actually plenty more in First Enoch, but that's basically where that idea begins, because prior to the writing of First Enoch, the only reference we have to fire as the fate of the wicked is the burning of bodies in Gehenna, the valley outside the walls of Jerusalem. So this whole lake of fire motif, as used by Jesus and John, originates here in First Enoch. Originally, the Jewish conception of hell was more like Sheol, which was supposed to be cold and dark and watery and full of the dust and bones of the dead underground. So do you get many other examples in Revelation of the use of First Enoch? Yeah, sure. What about the discussion of the blood of the martyrs in Revelation 6? This is verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Enoch also foretold this same scene. This is First Enoch 47, verses 1 to 4. In those days, the prayer of the righteous shall have ascended, and the blood of the righteous from the earth shall be before the Lord of spirits. In those days, the holy ones who dwell above in heavens shall unite with one voice and supplicate and pray and praise and give thanks and bless the name of the Lord of spirits on behalf of the blood of the righteous, which has been shed, that the prayer of the righteous may not be in vain before the Lord of spirits, that they may have justice and that they may not have to wait forever. In those days I saw the head of days when he seated himself on the throne of his glory, and the books of the living were opened before him, and all his host which is in heaven above and his counsellors stood before him. And the hearts of the holy were filled with joy because of the number of the righteous had been offered, and the prayer of the righteous had been heard, and the blood of the righteous not been required before the Lord of Spirits. Then we look at Revelation 20 from verse 12. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
there's that lake of fire stuff that I mentioned, but look at the way it talks about the judgment of God in First Enoch 47, and in particular the way the different realms within creation are going to give up the dead for judgment in First Enoch 51. This is First Enoch 51, verses 1 to 2. And in those days the earth also shall give back that which has been entrusted to it, and Sheol also shall give back that which it has received, and hell shall give back that which it owes. For in those days the elect one shall arise, and he shall choose the righteous and holy from among them. For the day has drawn near that they should be saved. So there's just so much in common in the Revelation, and that doesn't even get into some of the other stuff that I mentioned in my book, in particular Revelation 9 and the creatures that come up from the abyss, which are recorded as exactly a million times more than the number of angels that descended on Mount Hermon. Yeah, that's a really interesting connection. And as we were saying earlier, if you just read Genesis 5, according to the timeline of the uh, Masoretic text, you wouldn't even know where that number 200 comes from. Yeah, and of course, last week I mentioned the sin of the watchers as described by Peter and Jude, which I don't need to elaborate on by now, but I just thought I'd mention that in passing. Obviously, the language used by Peter when he refers to Tartarus as the place where the fallen angels are imprisoned has strong connections to the Enochic literature. Yeah, that reminds me. I was going to ask you about that thing where Jude says that Enoch actually said the prophecy that Jude quotes. Yeah, okay, sure. So I'll just touch on that issue you mentioned last time, Chris, about the fact that Jude refers to the prophecy in First Enoch chapter 1, verse 9, because the wording used by Jude makes it sound like Jude actually believes that it was the historical Enoch from Genesis 5 who actually made this prophecy. So just to get it fresh in your mind, I'll read that passage from Jude. This is verses 14 to 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. All right, so the issue we've got here is that Jude explicitly says Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, which would give us the impression that he believes that it was the historical Enoch himself who made this prophecy. Yep, that's what it looks like. Now we've got some options here. Option one is we take it at face value. Jude is telling us that Enoch said these words. It's not going to be exactly the same words because Jude is paraphrasing, but the idea is that this is what Enoch said. Whether Enoch himself actually wrote down what was said or somebody wrote on his behalf as part of the preservation of the oral tradition remains ambiguous. Option two is that when Jude says that Enoch prophesied, he's talking about written prophecy. And he means to say that Enoch himself definitely wrote those words, which Jude has paraphrased. So that would require the preservation of that text until such time as Jude has been able to refer to it. Option three, Jude says that, but he doesn't really believe it. He understands that this is literature that probably didn't get dictated or written by the historical Enoch. In this scenario, Jude understands that this is simply a saying attributed to Enoch and referring to him in a historical sense when he says the seventh from Adam. It's just a way of clarifying which Enoch is being spoken of, i.e. not the guy from Genesis 4, as the reference point rather than a statement of fact about authorship. In other words, Jude understands what pseudepigraphical literature is and he's treating it as such. Option four is that Jude really believes that Enoch was the originator of this prophecy and he's wrong because it was written by somebody else much later on who claimed to be that guy. That's where a lot of critical scholars would land on this. You're probably not going to land there if your view of inerrancy does not accommodate the mistaken beliefs of biblical authors. In other words, Jude can't be wrong because this is the Bible and biblical authors don't make mistakes or believe things incorrectly. So if that's your position, then this one's off the table. I might just add that the Bible says that snails melt in the sun. So, you know, if the Bible says that, it must be true, right? Okay, so option one was Enoch said those things and somehow they've been preserved. Option two, Enoch really was the author and Jude is using him as a reference. 
Option three, Jude realises this is literature and he is presenting it as such and doesn't really believe the historical Enoch had anything to do with it. And option four, Jude really does think it originated from Enoch, but he's wrong. Now, before you land on one of these, you've got to consider that there are other possibilities in between. The earliest manuscript evidence we have for the Book of the Watchers comes from the 3rd century BC, but a fair amount of the text of First Enoch does draw from earlier biblical sources. Could there be a possibility that there was an early source for the words of the historical Enoch that hasn't survived? It's not impossible, but it's also not likely, because nobody in the Hebrew Bible refers to it ever. Unless you consider that Jude himself may have been drawing from a different manuscript tradition than the one preserved in the extant copies of First Enoch. You see, we've been operating under the assumption that Jude is paraphrasing from First Enoch and we don't have any evidence to the contrary, but what if he was simply quoting a different source? What if Jude actually had access to an earlier form of the text that eventually developed into the Book of the Watchers? It's an attractive possibility because it allows us to read Jude at face value. The problem is we just don't have any external evidence in favour of it. That's not going to bother a lot of people, but it's the historical setting in which the Book of First Enoch originates that really ought to guide our thoughts about authorship and composition. It's only in the Second Temple period that we start having issues around which calendar is correct and ideas of multitudes of specifically named angels that have particular jobs and these really overt apocalyptic leanings. And all that stuff really sets the date for First Enoch and precludes the possibility that it could have been based on a much earlier tradition. Having said that, we still have the possibility that perhaps the entire work of First Enoch was based on a fragmentary preserved tradition or an early composition that was relatively undeveloped. And this is where I think it's important for us to go back and look at stories like Judah and Tamar. So I mentioned that earlier, and I also mentioned about how I'd written about that in my book. If this interests you, then you definitely need to grab a copy of the book and have a read, because I think it's just a little too coincidental that way back in Genesis, we have essentially a retelling of the sins of the Watchers in the form of a story about the patriarchs, which reads very much like The Pilgrim's Progress. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with that book, The Pilgrim's Progress, but it's a story which is written entirely allegorically. And the real message of the story comes through in the meaning of the names of the characters. And the story of Judah and Tamar can be read in the same way if you understand the meanings of the Hebrew names. But instead of telling a story about the Christian life, this is a story about those rebellious sons of God and what they did. When you understand that the story of the Watchers is being told in the Torah, you begin to realize that the tradition behind that story is a lot older than we've been led to believe by those who would tell us it was invented in the 3rd century BC. In fact, what it means is that the story must predate the exilic period and existed in the Jewish tradition and wasn't just imported from Mesopotamia in the exile. That's a big deal. And coming back to the situation with Jude, what it means is that nothing is off the table, especially when we consider the later traditions that talk about the knowledge of celestial bodies and that kind of thing preserved through the flood by means of those patriarchs in Genesis 5. And it doesn't matter if you go with Enoch or, as we saw earlier, if you put Seth in the place of Enoch. The point of those traditions is that some particular wisdom was passed on. So why not prophecy about the end times? But we have to remember that those traditions come after the writing of First Enoch in the form that we have it. So they don't prove anything except for the fact that it was a commonly held belief at the time. So the question that Jude presents us with as to the authorship of that part of First Enoch and what he believed about it remains open. Ooh, unsolved mysteries. Like the TV show. That's really cool, and it makes me want to go back and read Genesis 38. Yeah, you do that. Now, you can't talk about the New Testament without mentioning the Apostle Paul, since he wrote so much of it, and it's quite evident that he also was familiar with First Enoch. It's the rationale he uses for urging women to be dressed with modesty when he says that they ought to cover their heads because of the angels. Oh, yeah, that's First Corinthians 11, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a reference to culturally appropriate sexual propriety in the context of worship. 
And it makes sense against the backdrop of the paradigm created by the story of the fallen sons of God. Again, you might not agree with that one if you have a problem with scripture being written by people who were under a false or incorrect belief at the time. It's not very scientifically accurate. But then the point was never about the science, but we're definitely not going on there. Let's move on. First Enoch 48 verses 2 to 4. And at that hour, that son of man was named in the presence of the Lord of spirits, even before the sun and signs were created, before stars of heaven were made. His name was named before the Lord of spirits. He shall be a staff to the righteous and they shall steady themselves and not fall. And he shall be a light of the Gentiles and the hope of those who are troubled of heart. Now, keep that in mind when we read this from Romans chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So you've got this idea presented that the Son of Man should keep righteous Israel steady so that they will not fall, to the end that the Gentiles also could be saved. That's straight out Pauline theology, and it comes from First Enoch. Let's have a look at another one of Paul's letters. This time we'll read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 19. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. All right, so I gave a little extra context in the beginning of that reading because I think it's super important that whenever we read Paul, we read his perspective correctly, and we acknowledge that nothing Paul says here is intended to do away with Jewish observance of law. In fact, Paul goes on to state the importance of the law, and this is where it gets interesting and why it's relevant to us here. Paul says that the reason the law was given was because of transgressions. Now, if Paul had been referring to what we typically call the fall of man in Genesis 3 and the eating of the forbidden fruit, it might have sufficed to just say transgression singular. But Paul doesn't say that. Transgressions is plural. And he does that because he acknowledges that there is more than one reason for the depravity of the world that made the law necessary. That's an allusion to angelic sin. And you might also have noticed that Paul speaks about the law having been given through angels. And we talked earlier about the teaching ministry that angels were believed to have in the primeval history, according to the Enochic tradition. I always wondered about that mention of angels there because there's nothing in the story of the Ten Commandments about angels. Yeah, Paul does some really interesting stuff when he uses the Old Testament, and he quite often will just add things or change things in light of the narrative presented in First Enoch. Psalm 68 is a classic example. Paul makes reference to Psalm 68 in Ephesians chapter 4. Here's the passage from verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Okay, so what's going on there then? 
Well, it might not be immediately apparent until you actually go back and read Psalm 68 and compare what David said against what Paul tells us. This is from Psalm 68, from verse 15. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan, O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God designed for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Hang on a minute. David said that God was receiving gifts, but Paul said that God was giving gifts. So he quotes the psalm and then he just changes it. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly what he does. Hmm, I imagine a lot of people would assume that Paul has done that by mistake or a translator, you know, stuffed it up or something. Yeah, that's a pretty common theory. And I might buy that if it wasn't for the context of the rest of the psalm actually having significant relevance to the point being made by Paul. Listen to David talking about the mountain of Bashan. That's Mount Hermon. Look at the myriads of heavenly hosts commonly translated as twice 10,000. Again, we have a multiple of 200, which we've spoken about before as a significant number in this context. Look at this language of ascension and leading a host of captives. Now, David would not have written this with an explicit understanding that Jesus Christ would raise from the dead and that many would rise from their graves at his resurrection. But Paul sees that. David did not see the provision of things that God gives to the needy in the same way that Paul's seen it. Earlier in the psalm, David talks about the goodness of God and how God looks after other people. He's the father of the fatherless, the protector of widows. He sets the captives free. But for Paul, Jesus not only ascended on high and set the captives free, but he also bestowed upon his people, the church, spiritual gifts, which according to Psalm 68, came from the rebellious. So Paul changes the imagery from the conquering king returning with the spoils of war into an image of a great and glorious benefactor giving wonderful gifts to his people. And who are the rebellious that he took the spoils from? You know, we often talk about the miracles that Jesus did as being a proof of his divinity. But what did it prove to have his disciples also capable of miraculous things by means of spiritual gifts? It showed that the glorious power that had once belonged to the rebellious sons of God was now being bestowed upon the saints as they took the place of those rebels in the divine council. It was witness to the fact that God gave that power and God can apportion it according to his will. Hang on, you are saying that according to Paul, when Jesus ascended from the realm of the dead, where he had taken victory over the forces of death and the rebellious sons of God, he brought back within the powers that these divine rebels had once used against God's people, and he gave them to the church as spiritual gifts in order to strengthen the church and bless his people? That is what Paul's saying, yeah. Notice how his point in Ephesians 4 is counteracting false doctrine. That's a reversal of everything that the watchers did, according to Enoch. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 9 to 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who has ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. People will argue all day that Paul's simply talking about the earthly ministry of Jesus here, but it should be pretty clear to us that the language of descent in the context of Jesus having been born as the son of Mary would indicate a descent from the earth to the underworld, rather than a descent from heaven to earth. Certainly that's the way that others like Peter and Jude understood this. And aside from the other things I pointed out, which are shared between Psalm 68 and the Book of the Watchers, that's probably the biggest indication that Paul is actually drawing from First Enoch in his reinterpretation of the psalm. And then look at how Paul talks about the application of this victory of Christ. 
from verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Do you see how the purpose of those gifts, specifically those five gifts, the application of those ministries is designed specifically to reverse false teaching and to build up rather than to destroy the people of God. That's what we're talking about when we say that Jesus did all this to reverse the effects of the sins of the watchers. That's incredible, and it's the kind of stuff you never hear in church. Yeah, so we've seen some of the bigger themes that get borrowed from First Enoch and applied in the New Testament. And we've also seen a couple of examples where very similar language comes out. But I want to show you some examples of vocabulary that are lifted directly from First Enoch without any real precedent in the Hebrew Bible. This is just a selection. In the New Testament, we have First John 1.7, walk in the light. That comes from First Enoch 92.4, walk in eternal light. First John 2 verse 8, the darkness is past. In First Enoch, we have chapter 58 verse 5, the darkness is past. 1 John 2.15, love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. 1 Enoch 108 verse 8, love, nor any of the good things which are in the world. Revelation 3 verse 5, clothed in white raiment. In 1 Enoch 90 verse 31, we have clothed in white. Revelation 3.20, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. 1 Enoch 62 verse 14, and with that son of man shall they eat and lie down and rise up. Revelation 7.15, he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. 1 Enoch 45 verse 4, I will cause my holy one to dwell among them. Revelation 20 verse 13, the sea gave up the dead and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. 1 Enoch 51 verse 1, in those days shall earth also give back that which has been entrusted to it and Sheol also shall give back and hell shall give back. Revelation 20, verse 15, cast into the lake of fire. 1 Enoch 90, verse 26, cast into this fiery abyss. Romans 8, 38, we have angels and principalities and powers. 1 Enoch 61, verse 10, angels of power, angels of principalities. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. In 1 Enoch 48, verse 7, in his, that is the Messiah's name, they are saved. Colossians chapter 2 verse 3, this is speaking of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in 1 Enoch 46 verse 3, the son of man who reveals all the treasures of that which is hidden. 2 Thessalonians chapter 6 verse 15, king of kings and lord of lords. In 1 Enoch 9 verse 4, lord of lords and king of kings. In Acts chapter 3, verse 14, the righteous one, in reference to Christ. And in 1 Enoch 53, verse 6, the righteous and elect one, with reference to the Messiah. John chapter 5, verse 22, he hath committed all judgment unto the Son. And in 1 Enoch 69, verse 27, the sum of judgment was given unto the Son of Man. Matthew 19, verse 28, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory... 1 Enoch 62.5, when they see that Son of Man sitting on the throne of his glory. Matthew 19, verse 28, he also shall sit on 12 thrones. And in 1 Enoch 108, verse 12, I will sit each on the throne of his honor. Matthew 25, verse 41, prepared for the devil and his angels. And in 1 Enoch 54, verses 4 to 5, chains prepared for the hosts of Azazel. 
And in Luke 9, verse 35, this is my son, the elect one. First Enoch has in chapter 40, verse 5, the elect one, the Messiah. And in 49, verse 2, my elect one. I had no idea there could be so many references. Yeah, so hopefully that has disabused our listeners of the notion that First Enoch only touches a couple of biblical authors and doesn't have much of an influence on New Testament theology, aside from Peter and Jude. Actually, while we're talking about Peter, let's just have a look at how closely the language of Peter's first letter correlates with First Enoch chapter 108. I'm actually going to read that chapter. This is First Enoch 108, verses 1 to 15. Another book which Enoch wrote for his son Methuselah and for those who will come after him and keep the law in the last days. Ye who have done good shall wait for those days till an end is made of those who work evil and an end of the might of the transgressors. And wait ye indeed till sin has passed away for their names shall be blotted out of the book of life and out of the holy books and their seed shall be destroyed forever and their spirits shall be slain and they shall cry and make lamentation in a place that is a chaotic wilderness and in the fire shall they burn for there is no earth there. And I saw there something like an invisible cloud, for by reason of its depth I could not look over. And I saw a flame of fire blazing brightly, and things like shining mountains circling and sweeping to and fro. And I asked one of the holy angels who was with me and said unto him, What is this shining thing? For it is not a heaven, but only the flame of a blazing fire, and the voice of weeping and crying and lamentation and strong pain. And he said unto me, This place which thou seest, here are cast the spirits of sinners and blasphemers, and of those who work wickedness, and of those who pervert everything that the Lord hath spoken through the mouth of the prophets, even the things that shall be. For some of them are written and inscribed above in the heaven, in order that the angels may read them and know that which shall befall the sinners, and the spirits of the humble, and those who have afflicted their bodies and been recompensed by God, and of those who have been put to shame by wicked men, who love God, and neither love gold nor silver nor any of the good things which are in the world, but gave over their bodies to torture." who since they came into being longed not after earthly food, but regarded everything as a passing breath and lived accordingly. And the Lord tried them much and their spirits were found pure so that they should bless his name. And all the blessings destined for them I have recounted in the books. And he hath assigned them their recompense because they have been found to be such as loved heaven more than their life in the world. And though they were trodden under foot of wicked men and experienced abuse and reviling from them and were put to shame, yet they blessed me. And now I will summon the spirits of the good who belong to the generation of light, and I will transform those who were born in darkness, who in the flesh were not recompensed with such honor as their faithfulness deserved. And I will bring forth in shining light those who have loved my holy name, and I will seat each on the throne of his honor. And they shall be resplendent for times without number, for righteousness is the judgment of God. For to the faithful he will give faithfulness in the habitation of upright paths. And they shall see those who are born in darkness led into darkness, while the righteous shall be resplendent. And the sinners shall cry aloud and see them resplendent, and they indeed will go where days and seasons are prescribed for them. So that's the final chapter of First Enoch, and there are at least... 13 separate phrases, technical terms or concepts spelled out in 1 Peter that are drawn from 1 Enoch chapter 108. So in 1 Peter we have those who do evil in chapter 3 verse 12. We have perishable seed from 1 Peter 1.23. In 1 Peter 3.19 to 20 we have the spirits in prison. In 1 Peter 3.20 we have Noah's sons saved. And that doesn't appear in chapter 108 of 1 Enoch. It's actually in chapter 106 verses 16 and 18. In 1 Peter 1 verses 10 to 12 prophets and books and angels get mentioned. We have the disdain of silver and gold in 1 Peter 1 verses 7 and 18. We have the idea of being found praiseworthy or pure. Uh, 1 Peter 1 7. 
We have blessing in First Peter three nine. In First Peter chapter three verse sixteen, chapter four verse four, and four verse sixteen, we have reproach, insult, and abuse. First Peter two verse nine, blessing by contrast. In First Peter two verse nine, summoned from darkness to light. We have exaltation in First Peter five verses four and six. Finally, in First Peter one seventeen and two twenty three, we have the righteous judgment, which also shows up in First Enoch 108, verse 13. So there's certainly a lot of overlap there. And for some people confronted with this information, it's going to raise questions about inspiration and how all these things worked for the New Testament authors. It might be pretty straightforward in the case of First Peter. He's probably sat down just having finished reading the book of First Enoch and then started writing his letter to the churches. You can see how that would influence his writing. But what about John, the revelator? Isn't he supposed to be imprisoned on the island of Patmos, having a vision given to him by Jesus? It seems kind of convenient that so much of his vision seems to line up pretty well with uh, the portions of the book of First Enoch. Does that mean that he didn't really have those visions? Does it mean First Enoch was actually inspired the whole time? Did Jesus give John those references in First Enoch? How does it work? Well, I don't think we need to get too worried about this. John obviously knew tons of scripture because he makes allusions to pretty much every book in the entire Bible, as well as a handful of extra biblical sources. So if he's having this vision and he's reminded of stuff that he's read, then he's going to use that to put words to what he's seeing in his vision. That's pretty widely accepted that most Jews and probably a good number of Gentiles in the first century were familiar with First Enoch. So his use of that text is basically just going to put what he's witnessed into familiar terms. That shouldn't present any problems for anyone with a healthy view of inspiration. All right, Tim, it sounds like we've managed to cover all of the New Testament authors by now, haven't we? All except for one, mate. Really? Who are you missing? No, we haven't mentioned James yet. James? But James doesn't really strike me as an apocalyptic book full of supernatural references. It seems a lot more practical. It definitely is a more practical approach coming from James, but we're going to see just how much influence First Enoch has also had on the brother of our Lord. This is James 1, verses 11 to 18. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So James alludes to the fate of the rich here, and it would appear that we're talking about those who are unjustly rich. Then you get all this talk about temptation, which is mingled with sexual language, which we see in the idea of conception. And that may have been historically interpreted as a reference to original sin in the Garden of Eden. But I think we would do well to put this in the Enochic framework instead, because we have the intentional contrast with good things coming down from the Father of Lights, which is definitely the influence of First Enoch. And that final phrase there where he says that of God's own will, he brought us forth. Again, that's an intentional contrast to the rebellious sons of God and the Nephilim. James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. That one's easy. There's a very clear reference to the idea that demons are aware of the fate that is coming to them. Yeah, again, you don't get that from the Old Testament. And speaking of a terrible fate in the fires of hell, 
James 3, verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Again, we have this idea of fire and hell, which is a lot more than just the idea of Gehenna. The text actually does refer to Gehenna, but we cannot limit the use of the term to the valley outside of Jerusalem because it had become idiomatic by this stage as a reference to eternal punishment. James 3.14 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Again, we have this contrast between the wisdom that comes from heaven and the wisdom that comes from those upon the earth, which is, again, an allusion to the teaching of the fallen angels. And now this is going to be our last reference that we'll look at from James. This is from the beginning of chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. This is unquestionably a reference to the epistle, the fifth book of First Enoch, which features a strong warning against trusting in riches. First Enoch 94 verses 8 to 9. Woe to you, ye rich, for ye have trusted in your riches, and from your riches shall ye depart, because ye have not remembered the Most High in the days of your riches. Ye have committed blasphemy and unrighteousness and become ready for the day of slaughter and the day of darkness and the day of the great judgment. It's actually quite a lot there. I'm surprised. All right. So now we definitely have covered every one of the New Testament authors, and we've seen how First Enoch was instrumental to the theology of those authors. And hopefully that's helped anybody who might have still been a little hesitant to embrace First Enoch as a legitimate source to study as a part of their biblical education. Because if you're going to be critical of First Enoch as a whole, then you really can't accept so much of what the New Testament teaches. And I don't think any Christian wants to do that. So I'm just going to say it one last time. This is not an argument for canonicity in favor of First Enoch. All I'm saying is knowing this book is really going to help you understand your New Testament a lot better. Now, there's one last thing I want to say about this. You might have been listening to this entire episode wondering if I was going to mention your favorite connection to First Enoch and you didn't hear me say it. If that's the case, just let us know what other connections you found that I didn't mention because I'd love to have a conversation in the Answers to Giant Questions discussion group on Facebook and we can share all our nerdy discoveries with each other there. Not a member, not a problem. Just find the group and join us. Okay. Well, that's been amazing and really eye-opening as always, but we are running out of time, so we're going to have to move on now to our Q&A segment. Sounds good. What do you got for us? I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Well, this week we got a flood of questions from a guy named Noah. He has three questions for us. Let's see what we can do with those. I see what you did there. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Noah's first two questions are about the Garden of Eden, so I'll give you those two questions first, and then we'll look at his third question, which is about the number of the beast. Ooh, all right, let's get into it. I want to hear Noah's questions. All right, Noah says, I have always been fascinated in trying to locate where the Garden of Eden was. I believe that it was where heaven and earth intermingled. So it existed in the spiritual realm and also at an earthly location. During my reading a while back, I came across this verse that I'd never noticed before. 
2 Kings 19, verse 10 to 12. Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden, who are in Telassar. A brief Google search showed all of these cities in close proximity to each other in northern Mesopotamia between the Tigris and Euphrates. Rivers of interest is Telassar, which is another name for Tel Ashur, the hill of the god Ashur, whose symbol just happens to be what looks like either the tree of knowledge of good and evil or the tree of life. I know that a lot of people try to place the location at the Persian Gulf, but I think that a correct reading puts the garden near the headwaters of the rivers, not where they dump out. Does it matter that we don't know the location of two of the rivers? We do know the location of the other two and where their headwaters originate, so shouldn't that be enough to at least put us in the vicinity of the area where the garden was? Also of note is that the same area where the cities in this verse are mentioned just happens to be the same area where we are finding all of these ancient Neolithic Revolution archaeological sites, such as uh, Gebekli Tepe, which leads me to my next question. I believe that other people, hunter-gatherers, lived outside of the Garden of Eden long before Adam and Eve. Now, whether or not Adam and Eve were taken from among an existing population or created separately by God, I'm not sure. Anyway, Genesis seems to imply that agricultural and animal husbandry were in practice from the time of the exile from the garden as shown by Cain and Abel. In light of all the recent archaeological discoveries of ancient Neolithic revolution sites around the heads of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, do you think that these sites, such as Gebekli Tepe, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong, had anything to do with the Garden of Eden? Okay, well, firstly, Noah, I want to say thanks for sending in these questions. You're going to find as you take some time to dive into the earlier episodes of this podcast that I spent a fair amount of time talking about the Garden of Eden back in season two. And in that coverage, we did address things like location and cosmic geography and those scriptures that you mentioned. I even had Dr. Judd Burton on the show and we talked a little about Gobekli Tepe and some other sites in the region. So I'll give you the episode numbers for that. and You can dive into those episodes to your heart's content. So you're looking for season two and episodes five through eight. That's going to cover everything you mentioned in those questions. I'll also add that I agree with you about humans existing independently of Adam and Eve. That's an issue that is raising a bit of curiosity lately. And I want to acknowledge and thank friend of the show, Carrie Griffel, for acknowledging my work on this because even when Carrie got a question about this, she referred him to me. I was very flattered. Again, that's stuff that I cover in depth throughout season two of the podcast. And you can probably start in episode four, although to be honest, a comprehensive coverage of this would probably require you to go back to season one. For those who came in late, for the sake of anyone who's a bit sceptical of that view, I want to assure you that this is purely a text-driven argument from the pages of Scripture, and I would invite you to check it out just to satisfy your own curiosity before you reject the idea out of hand. I've talked quite a lot about this stuff because, as you probably realise by now, the podcast is designed to bring us through the early chapters of Genesis in sequence, from Genesis 1 through to the time of Abraham. So yeah, go back and check out some of that earlier content. Let me know what you think. Okay, Chris, let's have our final question for today. All right, thanks for that, Tim. And thank you, Kerry, for those nice words and for bringing attention to Tim's wonderful work. That's very nice of you. I might just mention Kerry's podcast as well, which is also a really great one to listen to, and it's called Genesis Marks the Spot. Check it out. All right, we've got one more question from Noah, which is about the number of the beast. Here it is. Noah says, I've always been intrigued in trying to understand the meaning of the number of the beast. 666 in Revelation. I'm looking for other references throughout the Bible 
I can only find two 1 Kings 10, 14 to 15. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants, from all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land, perhaps referring to the earthly material desire of riches. Daniel 3, verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Daniel 3, 4 to 6, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, the hagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Now, if you notice the height and width of this statue, along with the number of instruments to be played, you get 666, I did a quick search, and others have noticed this also. In fact, I believe the dimensions are symbolic of something because if you take them literally, then you would have a statue that would just topple over unless the statue was an obelisk. Anyways, I know that many believe 666 has something to do with gematria, but I've always felt that it meant something else. Seven is the number of God or completeness, and we know that God is a trinity, so could 666 be symbolic for the number of man, six, as an unholy anti-trinity? Man as God, like the serpent old Adam, and even the garden, you shall be like God. And like it says of 666 in the book of Revelation, for it is the number of a man. I'm curious to know your thoughts and if your research could perhaps reveal more insight. Okay, well, thanks for that, Noah. It looks like you put a lot of thought into this, which is great to see. We're running quite short on time, so I'm just going to go quickly through this. And if you want more, I did write about it in my book. You can get that through my website, which will link you through to Amazon. But I'm not just going to refer you to the book and make you buy it to get an answer. We'll talk about it now. Let's start with Solomon's gold. Earlier in this season of the podcast, I spoke about the importance of word order in the original languages, which helps us to understand the use of numbers in Hebrew because they don't use numerals like we do. In Hebrew, the numbers are always expressed in words. And what it gives us there in 1 Kings chapter 10 is the number expressed as 660 and 6. I don't think there are any particular interpretive shenanigans required here, but I want you to recognize that here, as in Revelation, the number is expressed not as a repetition of the number 6, but as a full number, 666. So we don't recognize this as 666. It doesn't seem like there's any legitimacy in attempting to anticipate the number of the beast here in 1 Kings because we don't really have anything much to indicate a thematic connection or a linguistic one for that matter. I take your point about the desire for riches and that kind of thing, but I also want to add that Solomon never asked God to make him rich. And although Solomon becomes a bit of a cult figure for wisdom-related Gnostic cults in the first century and thereabouts, I don't think that First Kings is necessarily painting a negative picture of Solomon on the basis of materialism. If the author had anything bad to say about Solomon, it was more to do with his tendency toward idolatry. And I'm not sure that the weight of his gold, as expressed here, makes any particular connection to that. Still, you had some good thoughts there, Noah, so I just want to encourage you. Let's have a look at Daniel now. So in Daniel 3, we have Nebuchadnezzar and his great big statue that he wanted everyone to worship. And the dimensions of this thing are 60 cubits high and 6 wide. Now, you're right, Noah, some have speculated that this could be something like an obelisk. However, when we have a look at the Hebrew, we find that the word translated as image is the word tselem, which is typically the language used of a carved or engraved idol fashioned after some kind of earthly creature, like an animal or a person, or some kind of divine figure. 
So we probably don't have an enormous obelisk of pure gold. And just as a little curiosity here, nobody ever made anything that size out of pure gold. It was usually just overlaid with gold. Not that you would tell the king that. <laughs> yeah, pretty sure that's going to get you fed to the lions or incinerated or something. Yeah, but getting back to those dimensions, we have 60 by 6, and that would give us 360. Assuming that this image was as deep as it was broad, you'd end up with 2,160. Whatever you do with those numbers, it's kind of a hard thing to bring that back to 666. And it doesn't get any easier factoring in that additional information, which has been suggested by some in the part of the text about the musicians. I guess the assumption there is that if you have 60 and 6, and then you have these six musical instruments, then that's somehow supposed to give you 666. But it doesn't, because what it actually gives you is 60 and 6 and 6. That's not the same as 666, so it's kind of relying on the idea of just having three sixes, but that's not the only problem. The trouble is there are six specific musical instruments mentioned, and that makes it sound like we could be onto a significant number here. But then it also says right after that, and every kind of music. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not sure that anybody could tell us how many kinds of music there were at the time and what that number might look like, but we can't really divorce that from the six specific instruments mentioned, because that would be taking those six out of their context. I would have thought those six are mentioned because of their particular significance in a ritual worship situation and the addition of music of every kind is there to provide some sense of overwhelming magnitude or greatness or something like that maybe. Yeah, I reckon you're right there, Chris. But even if we ignore the extra musical instruments and we just focus on those six, are we supposed to be counting everything? What about the eight different classes of officials required to participate? The text is very particular about specifying each of them and repeating them just like it does with the musical instruments. Are we supposed to tie that in with these numbers as well? How far are we supposed to stretch this? I mean, we started talking about the dimensions of an idol and then we had to throw in the number of the musicians as if that was somehow connected. What else is connected? Is there anything off the table here? At the end of the day, people can make statistics and say anything they want. And I think that's really what's going on here with the typical analysis of these numbers. I'm trying to be fairly charitable here, but I really don't see any legitimate connection to 666. That could make any sense. I will say one thing about that golden statue though. We don't get told what the image represents, whether it's some kind of human figure, perhaps the likeness of Nebuchadnezzar himself or a divine being or some kind of animal, but it's pretty tall, don't you think? Like disproportionately tall if it's meant to be a human? Just thought I'd mention that. Are we talking giants? Maybe. Incidentally, for those people worried about this thing toppling over, does the text really need to specify how deep they dug the foundation for the thing? Let's not act like ancient people didn't know how to build tall things and make them stay up. Just because it doesn't say that they dug a 30-foot deep foundation for this monumental statue, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't have done it. Anyway, that's enough of that. Getting into the use of 666, in the book of Revelation chapter 13, all I really want to say here is that I don't see any good reason to dismiss the idea that we're talking about an instance of the use of gematria. I don't think it's necessarily out of the question for John to use that as a tool for describing what he saw in his vision, especially keeping in mind the fact that Christians in this time were heavily persecuted, and he's got to make sure that this message gets out without raising the ire of the powers that be. As to the identity of that figure, obviously the major scholarship on this leads toward the Roman Emperor Nero, although you also have a reasonable argument to interpret that number as the word Titan, following a particular Greek spelling that was in use at the time. This actually has precedence for being interpreted that way as early as the 2nd century BC by some church fathers. And I'm not going to split hairs about this because, as I want to say on this program, por que no los dos? Why don't we have both? Whenever we read prophecy, we have to be mindful that we could be looking at a situation where an immediate future context is being viewed concurrently with a distant future reality. So I'm not going to pick one because I don't think I have to. Obviously, Nero fits much better in the immediate context, 
And as for the distant future interpretation, maybe we're looking at someone unnaturally tall. So there you go. If you want a connection to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, that's about all you're going to get. Anyway, it's been a huge episode and we really need to wrap this up. So we're going to leave it there. We'll be back next week to talk about what happens to the story of Enoch after the biblical period. Thanks again, Noah, for sending those questions in. And don't forget, listeners, you too can send in your questions just like Noah did by visiting the website, giantanswers.com and filling out the contact form. We'll catch you next week. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. Definitely opposed action figures trying their best to balance. Yeah, uh, Star Wars and Voltron and is that Robocop? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a bit of a mishmash. Um, wow. Some of this stuff glows in the dark, actually. Wow. Um, calling you. Call uh, back. I have small children in the background talking about their butts now. We all have them. Yeah, it's not huge, but it's actually yeah, it's not a, a bad size. Um, there's where I do my business. Speaking of butts, I uh, came with a washing machine, a dryer, and a uh, water heater in the bedroom. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, why not? Got to keep warm. It'd be handy if you want a cup of tea in the middle of the night. <laughs> Normally, I just want a wee in the middle of the night, multiple times. <laughs> well, he doesn't like to focus. And this is the uh, piece resistance. Yeah, you know, piece of resistance. Uh, but yeah, there's still stuff on the floor. Uh, the piece of resistance. Piece of resistance. It's glowing in the dark, but you can't really see it. Um, but the, uh, oh, wow, now I've got music in the background. It's all happening here. Oh, Shall um, we um, just try again tomorrow night? I'm guessing I'm guessing there's a fair amount of disappointment in, in what you're about to tell me. So many people go to the movies before I get a chance to tell me all about it anyway. And, you know, I'm not, like, super invested in surprise endings or anything, so... You know, you can... It's a bit disappointing. And then Nicolas Cage shows up. The chaos has finally subsided around here. Was that Hannibal Lecter? I don't know. Jude understands what pseudepigraphical literature is. da 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 da